Open to Exodus. We spent the last few years in the book of Genesis, and uh, it has been very sweet. And I'm excited because tonight is sort of a new chapter, in a sense, for our church because it's the first time on Wednesday nights where uh, everyone, adults and our children and our students, uh, are all going to be uh, beginning Exodus and walking through Exodus together. So our hope in that is not, not just for the sake of uniformity or anything like that, but our hope is that this fosters more conversation in your homes, uh, where you're being more, hopefully more intentional about these things that we engage as adults, that you can go home and, and know that uh, your children and uh, your students, you know, 13 to 18 youth age, uh, are all engaging the same chapter and the same text. And so uh, I'm hoping that this is, well, I'm excited about what's in store in that because I think it's going to be pretty, pretty cool to be able to all be in that uh, together as we are on Sunday mornings. While Genesis is largely a book of beginnings, Exodus is largely a book of redemption. Um, the need for redemption means that there's other factors in play. First, there's something to be redeemed from. Uh, this often includes slavery and oppression. Another factor is that you're being redeemed to something, as this book is largely about redemption. And for what purpose are you being redeemed? Uh, particularly for the Israelites, they're redeemed for worship. It was, let us go that we may worship our Lord over and over again. So Exodus tells uh, a story of redemption. It tells about God's promises being fulfilled, which forces us again to make sure, and I've said this a lot of times, and I'll say it again. We said it all throughout Genesis. We'll say it all throughout Exodus. This story is the story of a people, and it's your story. You cannot see your walk with the Lord as your own little personal story that's unlike any other's. I kind of grew up in a setting where the more unique and special your story was, the more you were asked to share your testimony. And then when you would share your testimony, if it indeed was unique and special as you thought it was, people would commend you greatly, pat you on the back, and want to hear more about your story. And while God undoubtedly does amazing things in the lives of every one of his children, the story of redemption is a story of a people. And so... This text that we're engaging in Exodus and that we have engaged in Genesis is not just characters in a faraway land long, long ago. It is very much our story, and it has a lot to do with everything in our lives today. Um, <clears throat> here in Exodus, we're looking at the fourth generation from Joseph, eventually is what we're going to be getting to. Um, and this was written by Moses, the same as Genesis, and it was likely written shortly after the Exodus. So before we dive into our text, keep your finger in Exodus 1 and uh, turn over to um, Romans 15.4. It's sort of surreal that we're starting Exodus. The pages are so tattered for Genesis, and Exodus is soon to follow. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Leviticus. We'll have like a five-part Leviticus or something. Um, Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So this that we are reading, which was written in former days, was written for that purpose. And so we should engage it and study it with that purpose. 
as well, I want to encourage you that we're likely going to spend the next year or two in Exodus. That said, it's important that you spend some time actually reading it in preparation for the study. The Wednesday night study is not in place of your study of, of this. Um, it's the same with John. Uh, it would benefit all members of Crosspoint to regularly be reading through John and Exodus, both personally and with family and friends. If that's where we're going to be at in the teaching and the preaching, it's great to just read through them as family, read through them when you have time, uh, read through them in your devotions. And if you get a little crazy, you can even go to Hebrews because that's where Ben's feeling led to go uh, after John. So really, Exodus, John, Hebrews, we should be getting sort of a regular steady diet of it as opposed to just showing up on a Sunday or Wednesday and hearing about it. It would be a, a huge benefit to you and to your family, to your marriage, to your parenting, to be, to be reading through it between Wednesdays and Sundays. And it brings us to our text, Exodus 1. We ended Genesis with uh, a funeral. Uh, Joseph had passed away at the very end. Uh, if Just go back briefly, verse 20. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In Exodus 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, we know the story there. It wasn't that he just got a head start. He was sold into slavery, put there when he was 17. Uh, the Lord used him in a mighty way. The Pharaoh appointed him. He was put in charge of the jail. Then he was put in charge of uh, hearing Pharaoh's dream. And then he worked his way up and up and up. And then once he got to a certain point, um, he was... Um, he essentially spent the last 17 years of his life with his family because they were reunited as they came there for grain and Joseph knew who they were and we've all heard the story, but I want to make sure we retrace it a little bit to know what we're dealing with here. They're, they're here and now Joseph has passed away, 70 persons uh, in all. Uh, and in verse six, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So um, anytime we see in scripture, people die or they all die at this point, we're reminded that death is, <clears throat> is, uh, is a, a guarantee for all of us, as it was for them then. But the people of Israel were fruitful <clears throat> and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What land? Egypt was filled with who? A whole bunch of Israelites. So here we're seeing God's promises fulfilled. When you think of a nation, how many people do you typically think of? A lot. Like not 70, right? Okay, and, and how many were, uh, Israelites were in Egypt at the beginning of the book? 70. See, at this point, Israel's still a name more than it is a nation, right? Because when we hear Israel today, we think of the nation of Israel, God's people. But if you go far enough back, you realize that it was actually what Jacob's name was changed to. It was a name as opposed to a nation. It was a name that would be made into a nation. So we're in this in-between time where 70 is not quite a nation uh, of Israel, but we're moving away from it being the name of a man to being this heritage to eventually being this nation. Why were the people of Israel fruitful and increasing greatly, growing exceedingly strong? God's blessing, right? Turn back to Genesis 12. I'm going to have you turn there because we can't read this enough. 
Genesis 12. Verse 2, and I, God, will make you, Abram, a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We, we can't go back to that promise enough. Like that, That's a big, pivotal point for God's people, that God's going to bless them, he's going to increase them, and he's going to make them great. For what reason? For his own glory, so that they would be a what? A blessing. Okay. Uh, we can never be reminded of God's promises enough. Now, interestingly, how does, Rome, how does Genesis 12, not Romans 12, how does Genesis 12 encourage you today specifically? Exactly. That didn't stop anywhere along the way. Like, that's why we can't be reminded of the promise enough. It didn't stop where God said, I'm just going to quit blessing my people. In fact, even when the people became wicked beyond measure, he, he still would bless his people. He still would redeem, and he still would keep some for his own up until today. And so we are still a part of this blessing, and you should be encouraged by it. At best estimates, God's promises later on in Exodus, it talks about having 600,000 men who came out. That means that we can, we can guess with women and children, there were about 2 million, 2 million Israelites by the time of the Exodus. How many did they start with when they went to Egypt? 70. And how many did they end up with? 2 million. Okay. How many years did they have? Yeah, from the, from the time of the promise in Genesis 15 to the time they left Egypt, that was 430 years. They had decades, possibly a couple centuries. There's a bunch of different timelines you can look at. They probably didn't have any more than half of that time in Egypt. Um, so call it 200 years. Ultimately, we know it's at least four generations. That's a lot of babies, Right? Like, like, we have a lot of babies here at Crosspoint, but two million in four generations. Um, Seventy in the land of Goshen, despised as an abomination of shepherds, all slaves by title, have now been blessed to an exceeding degree. Two million people. Why do you think that God cares about Israel being two million people strong? And does that affect us today? That's a big blessing. Who's doing the math in their head right now? Anyone? Anyone crunching the numbers? If you have 100 families that have 27 babies each, and every 27 of the offspring has 27 offspring, for four generations, you'll end up with 1.968 million, almost 2 million. It's a lot of babies. A lot of babies. Now, why does God bless them to the tune of two million people strong? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, ultimately all this is about showing God's glory. I mean, God is wanting his glory to be seen so that they'll know that I'm God. And so we see that he, he grows them to a couple million before they leave Egypt. And we see that there's this effect where everyone's looking and saying, man, this is just not normal. In fact, this rate of reproduction is just flat unnatural. What's going on here? We have to do something. We're going to see what they do in a minute. But what I'm getting at is this. I, I was reading this and I was just sort of, people get so wrapped up over numbers right now. And right now, 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, numbers, 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 the more the better. And when I read this, I was thinking, two million people, man, think if the church was a healthy two, not that they were healthy, but if it was two million, okay, give me a million health, healthy ones, you know, and, and what, what we could do with that many people, and if the Lord would bless, and, and I started getting wrapped up in the number. It was interesting because as I was looking at this, for whatever reason, my thoughts went to Pentecost. How many souls were saved in one day? Yeah, thousands. So, what I'm getting at is this. Um, this time of Israel increasing greatly is a unique time as was Pentecost. They're unique. It's not the norm. And they're for a purpose, to display God's glory. But what God tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, you don't have to turn there. It says, Apollos water, Paul planted Apollos water, but who gives the growth? God gives the growth. Growth is God's business. It's not yours. It's not mine. I went to a church planting conference one time. So they said, turned out it was a church growth conference. Everyone there stunk at what they were talking about. No one knows how to grow it. Like, there's people who specialize in the growth part of it, but one man planted, one man watered, God gives the growth. Why did they turn to two men? Because God gives the growth. Why did thousands get converted and truly change the Pentecost? Because God gives the growth. But if we try to reproduce that, we start thinking we can somehow control the growth. And in doing that, we'll oftentimes abandon the planting and the watering. And it's dangerous. So this exponential growth is certainly unique. And in my notes, I have, be careful not to go off on a tangent here. <laughs> but God gives the growth. Consider also that very unnatural rate of growth. I was thinking through that. I mean, that's a lot of babies. If it's just 12 tribes, each tribe has to have 166,667.667 babies. Each tribe to reach 2 million. That's a lot. No daycares. Um, four generations. Um, one commentator said, as often as they, those who are critics, see what happens is this. Um, a lot of times, uh, godlessness will always do all that it can to make sure that God doesn't get due credit. So if something makes sense, if it's like, wow, that's amazing, and then if I look at it long enough and I can make sense of it, then I just attribute it to a natural cause. Science, if you will. Like, oh, that's amazing. But the closer I look at it, uh, uh, that's, that's not, I, can, I can attribute that to, to, uh, to science, to natural causes. So I'm not going to give God the glory. Like, there's people who will do historic, specific things on the flood or the parting of the Red Sea. I remember seeing this whole deal on the parting of the Red Sea and the waters would blow and it was dry and, and it's totally scientific, totally natural. So we can explain that we're good with it. What you're doing is saying, I don't want to give God his credit for being amazing. To the other side, 
is that if there's something that is so unimaginable and huge and magnificent, then we'll dismiss it. Well, that didn't really happen. Oh, right. Noah built the ark, put all those animals on it. No. Unrealistic. And they could be dismissed. Or if you could figure out a way to explain it, then you'll explain it, and then you'll attribute it to something natural. But either way, God's not going to get his glory. So the point is that godlessness will always do all that it can to make sure that God does not get the proper glory that he deserves. As often as they, the godless ones, meet with any point which perplexes them, they gratuitously invent whatever suits them. I don't believe that. I'll rewrite the story. And then obtrude their imaginations as indubitable facts. So you just retell the story however you feel comfortable with it. Did anyone have a hard time with Jonah being swallowed by a whale? And living for a few days, being burped up onto a shore, and then not dying and telling the story. Do you really believe that the sea was so angry and that when he was thrown in that it calmed? Is that hard to explain? Uh, a great explanation I once heard is someone said, okay, turn to Genesis 1 with me. And I did, and I turned to Genesis 1 and said, in the beginning who? God. Well, if it's in the beginning God, then Jonah could have swallowed the whale and we should be fine with it. Because God's not limited to these this. He's not limited to this. He's not limited to our math, our science, our time, our physics. He's not. He's creator. All these things that we try to limit him to are created things. Is it really reasonable that the hand of God should be so restrained as to be unable to do anything which exceeds the bounds of human comprehension? Is it reasonable that all that God can do is whatever we can comprehend? And that's, a, that's unreasonable. He's God, right? So, when I look at this birth rate, I'm like, wow, that is not within my comprehension. And he's God and I'm not. In Isaiah 51, he says, look to the hole from which you were dug. Look at verse 8, Exodus 1. Or the pit from which you were taken. Whichever makes you feel better, warm and fuzzy. Verse 8, so they're in, they're in Egypt. Israel is exceedingly strong, multiplying. Uh, a lot of people went from 70 to way more than 70. And um, about 30 years after Joseph died, this oppression kicked in. Where it was like, hey, we're not Joseph's buddies, boys anymore. We're, we are really um, being oppressed, and that's what's happening in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I want to briefly say this in case anyone has a question. Uh, we will refer to the king of Egypt as Pharaoh. Okay? Has anybody else ever heard anything different? Okay. Cool. That said, we will refer to the king as Pharaoh. Um, there are some who think that the king being referred to is actually an Assyrian because of Isaiah 52, 4. And a verb clause in uh, some other book. And so uh, being different of the same kind and being different of a different kind are different. And so they're thinking that's an Assyrian king who's actually utilizing Pharaoh just as the serpent utilized Herod. 
But we're going to say the king of Egypt is Pharaoh from this point on for the sake of clarity, which I just uh, blew <laughs> mud into. Um, but uh, the, a new king arose over Egypt, the Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. Now, here's my question. How could it be possible that this Pharaoh did not know Joseph? 30 years. <laughs> he came from Assyria would be a great explanation. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, that's a great point. That's a great point. Who was the president 30 years ago? Oh. Um, it was Reagan. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Everyone's like, now I can't focus. Who's the president? Um, I, I believe that, you know, a country that is just focused on what's happening on the here and now, it's not hard for someone to be completely forgotten in 30 years, no matter how great of a thing they did. Think about some of the greatest inventions in the last 30 years that you couldn't say who did it and who didn't do it. Um, the VCR, you know, something like that. I mean... I mean, it's quickly dismissed. But I also think there's something else at play here. I think that the moderation of Joseph is at play here. Because Egypt was a very just over-the-top country. I mean, uh, oh, you like that? Let's make a golden statue and worship it then. Oh, that's significant? Let's build this thing that will outlast all of us as though um, this will go on for eternity. I mean, they were big on monuments and stuff, and Joseph being so important and getting them through this horrible season of plagues and making sure that, um, in fact, the world was cared for via Egypt because Pharaoh put him in charge. He, he could have demanded greater things for himself. He could have demanded greater things for his people. And if he did so, it's likely that his name would have been well-known by the Pharaohs. There's many Pharaohs, just to make sure we're clear. When you hear Pharaoh, it's not just one guy. There were many of them. Instead, it's Israel as a people that are known. I mean, that's a sign of good leadership for Joseph. It's not everyone trying to make sure his name goes down in history, but the people who are known, the ones remembered, are the people of Israel. And I would say that it appears that Joseph had moderation in his life and worked in such a manner as to keep them as sojourners who were always intended to one day leave. He didn't care to infiltrate the Egyptian culture and be the main guy. Um, Israel was led by God providentially through man, lead, uh, leadership of man to be the kind of people who were intended to one day leave and not always stay in Egypt. Where would they one day leave and go? What was the, what's the plan? Where? Promised land. Yeah. Um, so, look at verse 9. And he said to his people, so this king of Egypt says to the people in a public forum, when it says that he said, the, the, the verbs and junk that are used there essentially say, this is sort of a public gathering, and he's spoken to his people in a public manner, saying, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And frankly, if you're an Assyrian, that makes more sense than an Egyptian, but we won't go there. The people of Israel, too many, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. 
This is a public statement. There's two different kinds of slavery. I remember the first time I read about slavery in the Bible, and all I had ever heard about slavery previously was the slavery of African Americans here in our own country. And I remember reading that in my history books thinking, oh my goodness, that's crazy. And so when I ever heard about slavery early on in, in Genesis, I had this view of it that it was this horrible, wicked, disgusting, unfair, unjust thing. And really, there's two different kinds of slavery in the Bible. There's a kind where those serving are well cared for and respected by those whose charge they are under. That's not the other thing. The other thing's very different. The other is the kind of slavery where there's an oppressive taskmaster. And this here is a shift that Israel is experiencing. They went from being slaves in Egypt who were actually fairly well cared for. They had their own piece of land, Goshen, that was extremely fertile and extremely fruitful. All, they were all, um, I mean, we saw what happened earlier in Genesis where they were given food and they were given clothes and they were given land and they were given a place to live and they were well cared for, even though they were slaves. And in fact, even Joseph, he was just a slave. He was brought out of prison and he was still a slave, but he was well cared for and he was respected and he was listened to as well. But it's changing from that good slavery to this bad slavery for the people of Israel right now. It's changing to this point of being very afflicted with heavy burdens by taskmasters, not people who respected them and cared for them. It was now by people who feared what they might do if it got out of hand. Now, why would such a thing happen to God's people? This, these are God's people. How could it be allowed that heavy burdens would be laid on them and taskmasters would lord over them? Turn to Genesis 15. You remember when God was making his covenant with Abram before he gave him his new name? Genesis 15 verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, Egypt. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Who said that? God. So saith the Lord. To Father Abraham. That's an important detail that no one wants to leave out. I will make you as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I will grow you, that Genesis 12 promised that I will multiply you and I'll make you strong so that you will be a blessing. But before all that really comes to fruition, you will have 400 years where you are a slave in another land and, and not the good kind. It's going to turn eventually into the bad kind where you are afflicted greatly. All of God's promises are fulfilled. And wouldn't it be great if it was just the ones that were free of suffering and pain and heartache and frustration? All of God's promises are always fulfilled. So we see, we'll see later in Egypt that in fact the cries of Israel went out. And it said the cries were so great as they went out from Israel that they reached the Lord. That they were weeping, Lord, we are afflicted greatly. We are being pushed very hard. So my question is this. 
Why was Israel caused to stay in Egypt for so long again? It's part of God's plan. I, I really want us to see this. Look at Genesis 15, verse 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. So probably the last generation that was born in Egypt had never experienced the Joseph-like Goshen before. They never experienced what that was like when they were respected. Probably that last generation at least, maybe the previous one too, was born into slavery and all they ever knew was oppression and heavy burden and taskmasters. These are God's people, God's children, little boys and girls born into a family and that's all they knew from the beginning. From as early as their earliest memory goes, they saw mommy and daddy afflicted and pushed hard with heavy burdens that were unjust. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is very complex. Um, this means that the Amorites and the affliction that they would receive was not yet complete. So God, in this scheme that, scheme's a bad word because it has a negative connotation, that his plan, his very sovereign plan, was such that the Amorites had a certain amount of uh, affliction that they would cause that God had a level that was set on it and it, wasn't, and, he, and it hadn't reached the level yet. And it wasn't until that happened that in fact God's people would be able to leave Egypt because there would be four generations who must endure that. Note that this was told to the Israelites ahead of time, right? This was told to Father Abraham who told his children who told his children, who told his children. And so this was told to the Israelites ahead of time. So the question comes about, you, you may ask, if they knew that this was going to happen and that they would be there for 430 years, then why did they grumble? God told them ahead of time, right? If God told you tomorrow's going to be a bad day and you're in the middle of the day like, ah, why, Lord? I told you it was going to be a bad day. So why would they grumble? I would answer that question with another question. Why do you grumble? What are some necessary things that we regularly need reminding of? Yes. Specifically, what are, what are some of those promises of what's to come, which is? Yeah. This isn't all there is. There's something else that's much greater. So if you're doing all your living for all that's right now, and it's not going the way you planned, be reminded that there is an eternity that awaits. What are some other things we need to be reminded of so that we don't grumble, even though we've been told ahead of time these things would happen? Say that again? It's in God's plan that we suffer. Like, that's never in, like, the first handout that a person gets when they visit the church, you know? It's, uh, you, here you go, welcome, you'll suffer, totally going to suffer. Um, the, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When I'm in the middle of a fiery trial, please, someone remind me. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Because when I'm in the middle of it, I need that reminding. When they're in the middle of this oppression, God said... It would, Moses, who's not born until the next chapter, was the one who wrote Genesis. 
It's not, it didn't get lost somewhere, and then he picked it up and found it. It was known. And we need reminding of these kinds of things regularly. Because just like Egypt grumbling, saying, oh, Lord, help us. He heard their cries, and he did help. But there was still this thing in Genesis 15, at the time of the covenant, where God said, you will be sojourners in a land that is not yours for 400 years, and you will be greatly afflicted for four generations. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Suffering produces endurance. I need that reminder. When you are reviled, not if you are reviled. I can't believe he said that just because of my faith. When you are reviled, not if. But we need the reminder. I need it. Wars, famines, and earthquakes will usher in the coming of the Lord. Nation will turn against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. I can't believe that's happening. Well, you should be able to believe that's happening. Jesus said it was going to. Be gentle. (laughs) Any of you guys need that? Or ladies, whatever. If so, don't throw anything. Be gentle. Um, Love one another. I mean, that's pretty common, right? But you still need to be reminded to do it, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Look at verse 12, Exodus 1. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Uh Uh-oh, the plan backfired. The harder we work, the more babies they have. How is it possible for them to multiply multiply greatly even when they're oppressed? There's one word I'm looking for. It's a name. Thank you, God. Look at verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. All right, let's turn the corner here again. It was, all right, we're going to make this hard. Now we're going to go from being extremely hard to ruthless. What's another way to say ruthless? What do you think of when you hear ruthless? Say that again. Cruel. Abusive. Yeah, we're not just going to make you do this. We're going to be rude to you while you do it. We're going to mock you. We're going to be, we're going to be relentless. We're going to be ruthless. We're not, we're not going to give you the break that you think you have, you're going to have. I'll beat you if I have to while you're working. I'm going to take the straw away so the bricks are harder to make. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter. The land flowing with milk and honey, what's the opposite of that? A land that's bitter. There's a preparation happening here. Made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Hear the repetition. Work, work, ruthless, ruthless, slaves, slaves. This was hard for Israel. This has gone from bad to worse. God's blessing upon his people has resulted in even more bitter circumstances. Not fair, right? I I was blessed and now my circumstances are more bitter. Has that ever happened to you in any way at all? It's pretty normal. Consider that God is still revealing himself to his people. He's revealing to them the kind of God that he is. They don't have the canon of scripture that we have today. I have a robust thing that when I see them going through that, I think to myself, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. They didn't have that. A.W. Pink states that in the earliest times, God, it would seem, did not communicate to his people an explicit and systematic form of doctrine. Instead, he instructed them mainly 
through his providential dealings, and by means of types and symbols, he put them in a circumstance to reveal to them what kind of God he was. At this point, he's peeling back that layer that says, you don't, you're not entitled. I'm still here though, but you're not entitled. He's peeling back that layer for his people as he shows them who he is. If you climb into this setting, you'll see this generation greatly afflicted, four generations, and by the last one, they were probably under the worst affliction. And in all of that, with each changing circumstance, Israel's learning more of who their God is. Look at verses 15 through 21. Then the king of Egypt, this, this gets pretty brutal. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, Shifra and Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Now, briefly, when someone takes it upon themselves to a point to, to show themselves as merciful by saying who is allowed to live, that's what you would call sort of a God complex. You think you're God? When did you take on the role of saying who dies and who lives? When did it become a show of mercy for you to say the women can live? When did it show that it's just for you to kill the Hebrew sons? This is getting all out of whack here. On the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives, what? Feared God. Oh, this is so cool. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Because at this point, probably like a few thousand were born that week. <laughs> the midwives said to Pharaoh, and I don't know that this is a stretch, but because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I believe it. All those babies being born. It probably wasn't like, oh, this is going to take forever. It's like, come on, I need to have another baby soon. <laughs> so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. While the call to make them uh, into slaves was public, the approach that Pharaoh took with the Hebrew midwives was private. Because what he was going to do was really wicked. And it would probably cause a revolt of some sort if the Israelites knew. If he came to a public forum and said, we're going to kill all of their sons. The slavery isn't working. The, the Hebrew, the, the, the Israelites would probably be like, no, you're not. We're out of here. You know what? Hold on. One, two. Yeah, there's a few million of us. Let's take care. You're going to kill our sons? How about I get a big son? You come over here. Like, that's what would happen. So he went privately to the Hebrew midwives. The Pharaoh here exhibits a cruelty otherwise unmatched. There are times when even children and women were killed during war, but during a time of peace, a time of birth, you're going to kill a baby for the sake of strengthening your own country? That's a wicked, wicked, wicked cruelty. Had he succeeded, what would be the outcome for Israel? What if he succeeded? What if God hit the snooze button that morning and he succeeded? No, Moses. No Moses means no what? No Exodus, okay? No Exodus means no what? And so on and so on to know Jesus. It was important that the sons not all be killed. There would be no name to carry on. 
Hebrew women would be used only to be impregnated by Egyptians so as to bear more slaves. That's the ultimate plan there. Oh, we'll keep our slaves. The women can live. It's wicked. Israel would cease to exist and the offspring of Abraham would be decimated. Interestingly, consider the unlikely source from which the nation of Israel was spared. The Hebrew midwives. What a sweet picture this is. These women establish a theme that's common to all God followers today. We are called to fear God above any other rule, nation, or circumstance. Romans 13 talks about submitting to all authority. But in submitting, you're never to be led into sin. Because when I read that, I have this canon of Scripture, this doctrine in front of me where I'm thinking, ooh, but be submissive to all authority. What about that? But that doesn't mean you're led into sin. It just means you submit. My question is, by refusing to fulfill the murderous deeds that Pharaoh ordered, what are they actually submitting to in his authority? They're submitting to God's authority, which is greater than his, but even within the authority that the Pharaoh has, what are they submitting to by saying, nope? What might he do? Kill him. He wouldn't hesitate at all, probably, unless somehow or another God does something. By all accounts, these are dead women. They're walking dead. You want us to murder the sons? No way. I'm a midwife. I know that, and I know I'm under your authority, but you're telling me to murder the sons of Israel? No. By saying no, they're as good as dead. Oh, unless God swoops in and blesses them. Otherwise. This is crazy, this whole thing. What they're submitting to is the possibility of death. Luke 12, 4 through 5 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Like he's saying, have this bulls that says, all you can do is kill me. Do you have that boldness? I think I would have been very humbled by the Hebrew midwives. All you can do is kill me. Worst case, I meet my maker soon. I start my eternity. I'm redeemed. Uh, Worst thing you can do is kill me. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Pharaoh doesn't have that. Yes, I tell you, fear him, the Lord. So it appears that the Hebrew midwives feared God rightly, right? Now, verse 19. What did it say? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for their vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. That may be true, but that was not the reason that they didn't kill the babies. They didn't kill the babies because they feared God. But when Pharaoh came and said, hey, what, uh, what is the deal? They said, well... They are just baby birthing fools. Some people say, well, that's a lie. Shouldn't they be punished? Here's my question. It looks like they lied maybe, right? Now, in our record, we do not have all that was said, but what we do have is the fact that God dealt well with them. He blessed them for their faithfulness. But for a moment, let's consider. If they had lied to Pharaoh... Would they be any more or less deserving of God's favor than before? If they had lied to Pharaoh, they may have. Would they be any more or less deserving of God's favor than before? No. Say that again. It's crazy. Here's what I'm getting at. That's a great point. Abraham was a liar. Um, 
Romans 7.21 says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. Do you find that to be a law? I know I do. I want to help this person. But I still kind of want to make sure someone sees me help them. <laughs> like evil just lies close at hand. I want to bless you. Did anyone hear that? <laughs> lies, like all other sin, cannot be commended. We'll commend sin. We're called to put it to death. But every human action honored by God is still somehow tainted by sin. What this means is that even the most faithful action is not completely free from stain. One pastor confessed, I sin when I preach. I sin when I pray. I sin when I eat. I sin when I breathe. The point is that God is merciful in every blessing. Mercy means you did not get what you deserved. So in every blessing we have from the Lord, God is merciful. Every one of them. There's none of them where it's like, did you see that blessing? I totally deserve that. (laughs) He's merciful in every single one of them. And we need not forget this unless otherwise we feel entitled. That's what it leads to. Come on, thank God. That was so good. Why can't it be a better day? God, we went out on a limb there. We really put ourselves out there. Are you sure you don't want to bless it a little more than that? We start to feel entitled if we lose sight of that. Now, look at verse 22. This is disgusting. This, this is violent. This gets to a whole other level. It's just one verse, and we could read it quickly and move on to Moses being born. But we're supposed to see it for what it is. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He went from public proclamation, make them slaves, be brutal, to private, head to the Hebrew midwives, kill their sons on the birth stool. Then now he's like, nothing will stop them. It's like weeds in a garden that you can't get rid of. They just keep coming back and coming back. So he goes back public and listen to what he says publicly. He commanded, not suggested, all his people, not just a few, all the Egyptians, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Just take into your mind what he's saying there. Think about what that would look like when the first baby is cast into the Nile. Pharaoh steps up the violence to an unimaginable state. He publicly states to all of his people to throw every newborn Hebrew son into the Nile as a sacrifice to their Nile God. Imagine living during this time as a Hebrew in Egypt. Can you imagine that? All you who've been moms, dads, all of you who've ever visited anybody in the hospital after a baby's been born? A mother nursing her newborn son is intruded upon by a common Egyptian citizen who rips her son from her arms and throws the newborn into a river. That's how violent this is. Every one of you, I command it. I'm the Pharaoh. I command you do it. Very, very, very gruesome. Very wicked. God intends for us to feel the darkness and the oppression. He wants you to feel the darkness and the oppression. All scriptures breathed out by God. This in Romans 15, this, this instructs us in something. The people of Israel are in a hard spot, but in closing, I, I want us to consider something. And I, I, think, I think that this will shape the way that we approach Exodus over the next however long. 
But we often look at Exodus in light of circumstances. We look at Exodus in light of circumstances. We say things like, let their circumstances inform our circumstances. Right? Almost as though, let their oppression inform my work environment. Let their person who is rude to them and oppressive and laid heavy burdens on them, I'll let that inform my oppressive boss. And we let it be very circumstantial. But what I would offer, and the way that we're going to approach Exodus, and it's going to take a little bit more to do it, is this. There's a greater benefit in viewing your sin, your sin in light of their circumstance. Does that make sense? The oppression that they're experiencing, rather than just trying to compare it circumstantially to our different oppressions that we have all experienced in some manner, let their circumstance of oppression inform your oppression under your sin. Does that make sense? The, the, thing, the heavy burden that's laid on them by their taskmaster, let it inform you in your circumstance when you are presenting your members to the flesh as opposed to the spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What a horrible thing. I want to read an excerpt from A.W. Pink's Gleanings in Exodus. This guy's really smart. Page 9. He, he starts off his thoughts on Exodus on don't just, don't just let it be something that sort of informs your little, your, your day or even your circumstance. It does do that, but it goes deeper because all of this is about Jesus. All of Exodus is about Jesus. The whole stinking book is about Jesus. Now listen to what he says. I was going to paraphrase it, but as I tried to paraphrase it, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to read this because the paraphrase is weak comparatively. The deliverance of Israel from Egypt furnishes a remarkably full and accurate typification of our redemption by Christ. He's saying the oppression of the throne and the redemption that they receive is so indicative of, of the redemption we have in Christ. The details of this will come before us, God willing, in our later studies. Here we can only call to attention the broad outlines in the picture. And listen to these broad outlines. Israel in Egypt illustrates the place where we were, where we were before divine grace saved us. Israel and Egypt is like you in your sin before grace. Egypt symbolizes the world according to the course of which we walked in time past. Pharaoh, who knew not the Lord, who defied the Lord, who was the inveterate enemy of God's people, but who at the end was overthrown by God, shadows forth the great adversary, the devil. The cruel bondage of the enslaved Hebrews pictures the tyrannical dominion of sin over its captives. The groaning of the Israelites under the burden speaks of the painful exercises of conscience and heart when convicted of our lost condition. The deliverer raised up by God in the person of Moses points to the greater deliverer, even our Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover night tells of the security of the believer beneath the sheltering blood of God's Lamb. The exodus from Egypt announces our deliverance from the yoke of bondage and our judicial separation from the world. The crossing of the Red Sea depicts our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The journey through the wilderness, its trials and testings, which God's provision to meet every need, represent the experiences of our pilgrim course 
The giving of the law to Israel teaches us the obedient submission which we owe to our new master. The tabernacle with its beautiful fittings and furnishings shows us the varied excellencies and glories of Christ. Thus it will be found that almost everything in the second book of the Bible, Exodus, has a spiritual message and an application to us. The point is, the whole book's about Jesus, and I cannot wait to dive into it. I'm very excited about diving into this as a body. It's all about Jesus. And rather than being quickened to eagerly anticipate our freedom from tough circumstances, my hope is that our study of Exodus will help us to eagerly anticipate our freedom from the burden of sin. Like when you think of heaven, do you think of what it will be like to be freed from your burden of sin? We know that it's not just about a mansion that's being built just for us. We know that it's about Jesus being there and being with our Lord. Do you anticipate being freed from your sins so that you can enjoy Christ purely, truly, wholeheartedly? In my study of this in the last week, I'm anticipating it like I never have. I'm seeing this burden of sin that I hate and it frustrates me in a million different ways. And I think I so, so anticipate when I'll be freed from that completely where I don't have to worry about the fact that I see it a law when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. How sweet that will be. I'd like to just close by praying to that end. And we'll dive right back into this next week. Lord, we love you very much. I'm thankful for our Bibles that inform us in ways that go far beyond the way we would be informed by anything else. Lord, I'm thankful for the work of the Spirit and our forefathers. I'm thankful for Hebrew midwives who feared you rightly. I'm thankful for Israelite forefathers who suffered. I'm thankful for redemption. Lord, I pray that you would quicken us to the right things, that you would turn our hearts and our minds to where they need to be as opposed to where they naturally go. If I just read this first chapter of Exodus, my mind naturally goes to, yeah, I've got some hard circumstances too, and one day they'll go away. But the burden and the oppression that we have under sin is so much greater. And our sin makes our circumstances even worse. Lord, I'm thankful for Christ. I'm thankful that for new life that we experience right now. I'm thankful that we don't have to wait to start a process of sanctification later. I'm thankful that right now, those who are in Christ have already started and are in the middle of a process of sanctification in which we are being made to be more like Christ. Lord, continue to sanctify us. We beg for the work of the Spirit. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.